Don't you hate it when criminals come after you wielding hot tubs and wheelchairs? Yes, we all hate that. Welcome to Kingdom of the Logos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure. Of course, we are not a bad segment of the 700 Club. We are a wonderful program hoping to stimulate your nerves, get your mind and those gears going, and we are produced by clergy in the Church of the Nazarene. And I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor. I'm Pastor Amanda Sparrow. And I'm Anthony Alegria. All right, in uh, our serious part of our conversation, we're going to be looking at the book of Job and talking about tips for prayer. But first, let's look at some interesting news. Yes, because there's always interesting news out there. And of course, as the name of this podcast suggests, the FBI have been put up against a hot tub of doom. And this is something which is really quite interesting. We've even got a poster here. I know a lot of people really hated that fourth Indiana Jones movie with Shia LaBeouf in there, that weird thing about the crystal skull. We've got a much better replacement of that. We have Indiana Jones and, well, as you can see, nothing is more scary than the wheelchair of doom. So basically what happened is in Oregon, there was a man who booby-trapped his house. And his mugshot is now photoshopped wonderfully into the Indiana Jones <laughs> poster there. But this is what happened. There was a particular county they were having to seize this man's property. And the guy who was in charge of going out to survey the property and see what things were looking at realized that it was booby-trapped. And he called in the FBI to send a special team out there to try to you know, make the property approachable, make it where somebody could walk <laughs> on it. Because the man had previously been convicted of possessing explosives, and he had also had some signs up which may have given away his game. He had a poster that said, warning, this property is protected by improvised devices. Sort of giving up the, the show just a little bit. So anyways, on September 7th of this year, the authorities came and they realized that the first obstacle they were up against was a minivan. Yes. <laughs> Um, this is an obstacle that many of us find in life. We think everything's going well, and then boom, suddenly a minivan. And this minivan, it was rigged with two booby traps. I know most of us may only be used to one trapped in the minivan, but there was two <laughs> this time. And the booby traps utilize steel traps with steel teeth, commonly used to trap wild animals. And again, some people are just crazy. Amanda, what do you think? If you ever see somebody having animal traps in their minivan, what would you think about that? This, I think you called the FBI and, and walk I, away slowly. I don't just mean animal traps like they're transporting them. There's somebody who yeah, who's like the, trapping, the, but there's claw things that you see like in old television shows, like the bear trap. Yeah. Yeah. These these are people who have the traps in there to keep you in. Yes. Um, not not good. Um, so upon a close examination, they started to go close to the property, and there was a gate that when they started to open it, they realized there was a tripwire, and the man had a hot tub. Again, he had it rigged at the sort of other end of the property where it would come rolling down the hill <laughs> to attack anyone trying to cross his grate. Um, this really is a low-budget... Indiana Jones. Yeah, this is a low-budget um, tale there on the Indiana Jones series. But then again, it may be better than Shia LaBeouf. Um, I will okay. say, this meme at least is better than Shia LaBeouf. <laughs> yes, we do have a meme of the hot tub coming after the FBI agents. So, it guys get... Worse, though, um, and I say worse, thankfully no one was, was killed in this, though there were some FBI agents injured. So they got close to the house, and they opened up the door, and the door as well was rigged. It had a trip wire at the door when you opened it that it launched a wheelchair at them that exploded. And one of the FBI agents who was there, he had some shrapnel come and hit his leg and actually had to be taken to the to the hospital to have, have um, operation done on that. So it was pretty serious, but it wasn't life-threatening thankfully thank heavens that this did not 
end in a worse situation than it did. But some people are just absolutely crazy. <laughs> I think that's a vast understatement, um, especially looking at this man's uh, history. And then he's allowed to go home um, and told, okay, in a little while you're going to have this trial that decides the fate of your house or your property. And he's like, okay, the next logical step in all this is to completely booby trap it. Right. He had already been in trouble with the law down in Arizona. Of course, this house that was booby trapped was in Oregon, but the judge let him out so that he could go home and get ready for the, the county there to come seize his property. Everything just really did go south. Uh, it is something which is does beg a lot of questions. One of the questions, of course, is were there still people in the hot tub when it was rigged to go after the <laughs> FBI agents. We all know that a situation like this, we've had enough information relayed from this. That there's probably, you know, the, the teenagers that break in and come and get in your hot tub. Do they even get out when the hot tub is <laughs> released? Rolling. It would probably be not. rather difficult. <laughs> it would. All right, well, the next interesting story we have involves some raccoons. There are some bad neighbors who use their hot tubs to come after the, the law enforcement, but then there are some people who have bad raccoons for neighbors. This is always a problem that we, we just hate it when, when it goes on. And here recently in West Virginia, there were some raccoons that the police had to take in. Um, unfortunately, there were neighbors in this neighborhood calling in and saying, we've got rabid raccoons. They're being a terror threat to our neighborhood. And when the police went out, they found that they were not rabid but instead were intoxicated. They had been eating some fermented crab apples, which made the raccoons drunk. And we actually have a mugshot that was taken by the police there. I think we, we've got it where you can see it. You can see the, the cute little raccoon. Of course, the <laughs> Procyon Lotor that they are. They are very interesting animals. But what we did not have, we, they did not release online the, anything other than the mugshot, but we thankfully, we have a caption of what the raccoon was saying after it was interviewed by the police. So he said, you know, I, I could have gotten away with rabies if it wasn't for the meddling blood alcohol level. Um, so that, that was something there. He, he really wanted to get away with being rabid. But there is a new market for everything. In our world, there are people who are still capitalists looking to meet the demands of the market. And they have a supply to meet that. Now we have breathalyzer tests, which aren't just rated for blood alcohol levels, but they're also rated for rabies. And we also have an image of that for you, the police officers going out to, to breathalyze test the raccoons. <laughs> Though the problem really with this is administering to, this, to the raccoons. Will they be receptive of it or not? Um, we have another image for you, and we'll let you draw your own conclusions would you be willing to give a breathalyzer test to a raccoon? Amanda, would you? No, I, I don't think I would be willing to do it in case the uh, question of is it rabies or uh, alcohol is uh, both. <laughs> yes, I think a drunk raccoon or a rabid raccoon would both be equally hard to give a breathalyzer test to. <laughs> I will say, first of all, they must have been some mean drunks. And not to mention... you. Know, you just, you can't get away with always pleading insanity, rabies. So I'm happy that we're finally breaking this out. Something that can test rabies <laughs> and whether or not you're drunk. Because if you're, if you're an absolutely mean drunk, you don't need to be getting away with this stuff. We need to be able to test these things. Well, and they didn't get away with it because the police actually apprehended uh, the two drunk raccoons and put them in basically the drunk tank for the night until they sobered up. They and did. And then they were released back safely into the wild. They were taken to the drunk tank, <laughs> um, which thankfully none of the raccoons were hurt. Um, that's also pretty cool. I like raccoons. I like things of the, the procyon, their classification of, of animals. I like things like raccoons and 
we're glad that no harm came to them. Um, and I don't think any harm came to the officers <laughs> dealing with them. That's good. <laughs> all right, so the next thing on our list to talk about, I know we're all worried about artificial intelligence and what we're going to do with, you know, autonomous vehicles. Well, in Australia, the wonderful land of Oz, there was a runaway train. A lot of times we think of driverless cars as some sort of futuristic technology, but actually I think we just need to go back in time and just go back to having trains and just set the <laughs> throttle on and let them go. Um, Self-driving is a lot simpler than we, we thought. So <laughs> in Australia, there was a train which ran away for 57 miles, and it was carrying iron ore. And what is interesting about this is basically a lot of modern locomotives, they have like a diesel engine which powers a generator, and then they have electric motors powering the wheels is how I understand a lot of these modern engines to work. And if you get out of them, you know, a lot of us, we forget to pull up the handbrake if we drive something with a manual car. Maybe you're, you're driving automatic and sometimes you're quick to turn it off without putting it just in park. When you drive a train, things can be a little bit more serious um, because sometimes these diesel generators and these electric motors, they decide they're going to start moving on their own. Mm. And the train in Australia, it started moving, kind of slowly built up speed. I think it was going somewhere around 68 miles an hour um, at its peak, and it went for... 50 minutes before they were able to stop it. It had 268 uh, wagons that it was pulling, and they had to forcefully derail the train in order to stop it. Now, to my knowledge, no one was hurt in the midst of this, and thank goodness for that, but it is a bit of a problem. We actually have a, a video here that I'm going to have Anthony share with you so you can see this train. And now there's no audio with this, but as you can see, there is a bit of, of wreckage going on there. And thankfully, no one was hurt in this. It was just a, a empty train that had to be derailed. Yeah, I will say, it does look absolutely insane. They pretty much turned like a whole, I guess, I don't know how long a train is, but this whole length into a small column of junkyard. Mm. Yes. You know, a lot of you may be saying, what in the world does this have to do with autonomous vehicles? But we know, we know. This is the land of Oz, and we know what Aussies are up to. They have their Thunderdome, whole idea of two men enter, one man leave. Well, what we see happening now is now they're pitting autonomous vehicles against one another. And we have another meme for you that says, two self-driving vehicles enter, one self-driving vehicle leave. It doesn't quite roll off the tongue as far as Thunderdome slang goes, but... The Aussies, they really are challenging Elon Musk there. <laughs> and, of course, that was Diesel from the Thomas the Tank Engine series, which are always the villains. The diesel engines are always the villains in that. Um, and he's had enough of, of Tesla. He's going to do away with that, too. Um, anyways. All right, the next thing we're going to talk about before we get into the story of Job and examining how we deal with suffering and different things in the world, we want to actually share another list with you real quick, and that's how to be avoid being a victim of crime. And Anthony, if you will share some of these pointers with us. And this is from the TV Guide. It's six tips from Criminal Minds. And so the first is, parking lots are death traps. Avoid them at all cost. <laughs> if you've ever been to, to Vanderbilt Hospital and had to park in the basement, like, I mean, the lowest level of their parking garage, you know this tip to be true. Because... I, if I ever am, am killed, that will be where it happens. <laughs> well, I think that's why we have valets. They can, oh, yes. they can be victims of crime for you. <laughs> Send them in. <laughs> and the resident person who used to do valet has no comment on this issue. 
Anyways. I was actually about to say, as as someone who has valeted, there are some crazy things that happen, and there are crazy people who want to <laughs> do them to you. They are out there. But um, I think also most of us also know that parking lots are not the worst, the deadliest place ever. Most of us have been in them, and I think almost all of us have been unscathed. <laughs> the second tip, don't jog in the woods by yourself. All right, I think there's just one statement to have to this, and that's just that jogging is awful. <laughs> yeah, I do, I do think the last part of that sentence is unnecessary. Just you could have stopped at don't jog. <laughs> yeah, people always want to get in shape. And look, I'm I'm getting closer to 30, and it's one of those things where you, you realize that jogging is is absolute hell. Like, I get that there's a hell thing to it. And even when I was younger, back when I used to do real estate, when I was paying for grad school, I would try to get out and run every day, and you get bored out of your mind, even listening to audiobooks. Nothing helps with it. It's just miserable, miserable thing to do. And we have another image to share with you on that. And, Anthony, if you'd pull that up and read it for us. Jogging is the worst. I know it keeps you healthy, but, God, at what cost? Yes. What is the cost of keeping healthy if you have to jog? It is absolutely miserable. miserable. Now, I will say, if your first thought whenever you want to go jogging is to do it alone in the woods, that's really specific. So no need to go in that direction. You're there's, definitely easier, gonna, yeah. there's easier ways to work out, easier ways to jog. So, And the third tip here is learn Morse code. That was yep. kind of an odd one, but yeah. It's I, not bad. It's a handy skill, but it does seem kind of funny. Like most of the time, in, in the context of the criminal minds, like someone uses it to so they can communicate with their team or whatever, so they can get rescued. And it's like not only do you have to learn Morse code, but you have to really hope somebody out there knows. What it is. Yes, that is true. I was about to say, in the case that you end up running into some like World War Two vet <laughs> who did this in intelligence, you well, get to use I your Morse like code. The but... younger generations in our world are just that we don't pay attention to enough. Like, I feel like actually the three of us here are pretty, do a lot better. We, we try to, and we hope that everyone out there, you can do more to, to pay attention. But it's one of the things where our, our younger generations, you know, just people don't care. Did they, did they teach? Uh, I remember in, in history, class, you were talking about World War II. I, I, in history class, they taught us Morse code, and we actually had a little test on it. And all I remember is SOS. But, like, is that still something that is even, like, remotely review, reviewed? I don't know. Um, do, do people still have to learn cursive? Yeah. <laughs> Do we, are we learning to write at all, or is it just all texting? LOL, no. What's I, the next? I remember talking about Morse code. I don't even think we are... I don't know if there's an alphabet to Morse code. I guess that's how it's done. Yes, but yes. We didn't. Even, we did not learn that. Okay, we didn't. that answered that question. And so, the fourth tip. Turn off location settings on your social media networks. I think I think in this this list is kind of um, in 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 humor because um, it's tips you learn from criminal minds. But this one's actually not a bad one, especially if you're going on vacation. Don't post it on social media because that's how the robbers know when to get to your house. That is true. Five. Lock our door. Lock all doors every night. Again, well, that, that's just a good tip. I, I, who is good. not locking their doors? <laughs> I mean, like, where where is this magical place where you think that's okay? And then number six, avoid public barbecues or cafeterias. Now this right. one, I'm sorry, can't do. That's a no-go. Actually, I think I can do this because there are just sketchy places to eat. Um, places that are just straight up sketchy. Um, we actually have a, another image for you where it's it's meat. Um, of course, when certain people, if you go to certain restaurants or certain places and the, the staff there and the product that they are giving you is just sketchy, 
Yes, you always realize there are sketchy places to eat. We ate at some place down in Dixon when we were recently at a district assembly. I know Amanda was there and I was there and a few others were there. And I think all the young people got sick yeah. at this place. And I think it was called like the cafeteria or something like that. I don't remember the name of it, but it was bad. And when you looked at it, you were looking at this place and like something about this establishment. I don't know if my immune system can handle touching <laughs> right. the silverware in here. Anyways, yes. You do put your life in your, uh, or risk your life in that instance. All right, well, we'll be back for some more serious conversation here after the break. All right, and if you're a person out there, you want to make some new discoveries. One of the discoveries that we made recently in our daily lives, our antics, um, Anthony's come to be someone I get to mentor a little bit. He's wonderful to have around. And Anthony recently bought a car, and the window regulator on the passenger door had a piece in it that broke, and we were going to have to weld it back together. And now I have a shop at the house, and it's not one that has heat or anything like that, but I do keep a fridge out there and a few drinks. And Anthony comes up with this part, and I've got to weld it back together, and we start welding, and it catches on fire. And this is something, if you've ever been welding stuff and you've just got a small piece that needs to be tacked back together, it's, it's always horrible. You don't want to spend forever getting everything set up. But anyways, this thing caught on fire. And I realized it was going to melt the rubber off of this piece if I didn't get it put out quickly because the rubber was kind of hot and burning. And I was like, oh, man, this is going to turn into a mess quickly. But I didn't have any water to put out the fire. So I ran over to the fridge, and the only thing in the fridge was a bunch of Pepsi. And I had a bucket right there, so I just started opening Pepsi and pouring it in this bucket. And then I run over there and threw this um, flaming hot piece of metal and rubber down in the Pepsi, and it started steaming out of there. And y'all would be surprised how wonderful and heavenly the smell of <laughs> steaming Pepsi is. It was awesome. We've been thinking at Kingdom of the Logos, what can we do to give something back to the audience, something you can have at home? And one of our, our tips for viewers at home, if you're ever looking for something nice to smell, you know, just go over there, put a little Pepsi there on the, the stove, boil it a little bit, and let that wonderful aroma fill your house. Um, no, we're just kidding. Please do not uh, catch Pepsi on fire or put things in Pepsi. That could turn bad. But in a serious note, if you do like the content we have here, if you want to, to be able to have more content from Kingdom of the Logos to share with your friends, or maybe you think we're doing just the right amount of content, but you want to help grow our audience, there are some things that you can do to help other people discover us. Just as I discovered this wonderful fact that Pepsi smells good. There are people in the world who need to know these things. Um, one of the things you can do is... Go to YouTube, subscribe to our channel, grab a link, share it with your friends. If you go to Facebook.com, so that's Kingdom of the Logos, you'll find us there. And we're live right now on Facebook. Take and grab a link to our content, share it with your friends. Just click that share button. It will do so much to help us out. And again, you can take our podcast with you anywhere. You can find it on iTunes, SoundCloud, CastBox, and even other outlets that are out there. And if you really want to help us out monetarily, you can do that at Patreon.com, so that's Kingdom of the Logos. And we'll be back here in a second to talk about the book of Job. All right, we are back and we're going to be talking about the book of Job. And we're going to do this like we've been doing a lot of our Bible studies lately. Anthony is going to read a few statements that we have prepared, and Amanda and myself, we will be responding to these statements. And we know that there are a lot of people who, who look at Scripture, and they look at different parts of the Bible, and they have questions about what they could be, 
And sometimes you can find a really good sermon on stuff, but sometimes there are places where a conversation is more appropriate. So we're going to be having a conversation about the book of Job and some of its themes. And Anthony, if you would start sharing these talking points with us. Is Job a book about God's punishment? And I think a lot of times this question would also be, you know, is Job a book about suffering for God? All right, Amanda, I'll let you open up. So I think um, we have to begin looking at the book of Job um, in its context, not only historically, but also literarily. And we see that Job is is a piece of the wisdom literature that's in our Bible. Um, Oftentimes you probably have heard like certain books called the Pentateuch or part of the prophets or the histories. Um, Another section that we kind of divide our Old Testament into is wisdom. And Job comes to us um, in that part and part of things like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And the idea of wisdom literature is just trying to figure out how the order of the world works. And so we see in the book of Job that a lot of people think the order of the world is you do good things, good things happen to you. You do bad things, bad things happen to you. So the response to Job's uh, bad things that are happening to him by his friends, by his wife, and by many others, especially even in the church as they continue to read this book, is that God must be punishing Job because bad things are happening to Job. But what we actually find throughout the book Um, Is Job wrestling with this idea? And then finally God answering is that this is not a punishment. This is not a direct consequence of something Job has done. Um, But this is suffering that has actually um, been caused by quite another character in the book that we'll get to later. Yes. And when I first preached a sermon series out of the book of Job, it was been a few years ago. And as I was doing this and I was spending a lot of time intricately studying it, studying the history behind the book, I was also going to grad school and I was studying criminology. And I'd been reading a lot of Supreme Court cases and things of this nature. And it occurred to me in such a vivid revelation that the book of Job is almost entirely set up like a trial. Even Satan in the book of Job, the name Satan means the accuser. It's it's a little bit different than other names we have associated with Lucifer and the devil. It literally means the one who comes to accuse. It's sort of like the prosecutor in a trial. And in the book, the accuser, he comes and makes this accusation that Job's not really righteous. And of course, the claim he's trying to make is that there is no righteousness. And the whole deal with the suffering and the, the pain and agony that goes on, there's really more the canvas that this question of righteousness plays out on. And even when we study the motives behind the accuser for making this, it's not just that he wants to come in and say there's no righteous. He wants to tear the world away to where there is no meaning. And that's one of the things fascinating about this book. It opens up. You can see sort of a clear narrative there that you can read and follow. Then it goes into this poetry that's really hard to read. And then it comes back with a bit of a story conclusion towards the end. And, of course, this is one of the oldest things we have in the Judeo-Christian tradition, especially as far as written works go. It is, is extremely old. We'll move on to the next point. So who or what is the accuser? All right, so that's a really important question, and especially when people are asking who causes the suffering. The accuser was supposed to be this being. It was supposed to be one of God's creations, but they went around the earth. They were not supposed to be good or bad. They were supposed to just be these amoral things. And when I say amoral, that's with the A, not with the I, making the is sound, not something which was immoral and bad, but it was something that was supposed to be neither good nor bad. It just seen and reported back to God. But was that the case with the accuser, Amanda? No, of course not. And we see that the accuser, he kind of starts off with his position, right? God says, what do you have to report? And the accuser goes, oh, yeah, um, I was out and I saw one of your followers, Job. But then he kind of transitions from the simply the accuser to actually maybe the aggressor. 
And I think um, if you're reading this story in your scriptures, I kind of did a quick survey of some different translations in English, and most of the time it will translate it as Satan. And Satan is just kind of, I guess, the alliteration of the Hebrew, Hebrew word Satan, which means the accuser, the aggressor. Um, and so, yeah, this accuser then kind of takes on a slightly different mode from simply reporting, as he's um, called to do, um, to actually saying, but here's the problem. Job, your father, is only your father because you give him good things. Um, and of course, God's response is that's not what righteousness is. Righteousness is not just conditional. It is living rightly and being in right relationship. And so this is kind of then what launches us into the story of Job. Yeah, and this is an old, old argument. And people are still making it today. They say, oh, no one's really good. They're only good because their their conditions allow them to do something in their environment giving them, you know, a treat. People have a nice treat in life and therefore they're good. But that's not what the case actually is. Does God or the accuser strike Job? All right, this is a really important question. And I'm actually going to let Amanda share her thoughts on this before I share mine. Again, going back to the text, it's kind of ambiguous if you read the first two chapters. Um, you know, the accuser first goes to God and says, if you destroy his family, his fields, everything that makes him wealthy, he's going to curse you. And then that happens and Job doesn't. And so the accuser comes back and says, well, that's just because you didn't actually destroy the man. And God says, well, you, you, can, you can touch him, but you can't take his life. And, and so there's this interesting thing that happens between the interaction of the accuser and God where the accuser obviously is still working under the jurisdiction of God. He can't do anything unless God allows him. Um, and God doesn't say that God's self is going to strike Job, but gives permission or allowance uh, for the accuser to have that kind of power. But yeah, there is it, the language can be sometimes ambiguous where it's hard, and it does almost at times in the reading sound like God is striking Job. But again, going back to our first question when we asked about God's punishment, this is not... Um, a tit for tat. This is not Job was a bad person or even that because he was a good person. Somehow he deserved for God to strike him with a lightning bolt. This is a very um, heathenistic, for lack of a better word, a very heathenistic view of how God interacts with God's creation. And one other point to add there is that it is Satan who clearly initiates this whole suffering. The, the accuser, this thing which was supposed to be neither good nor bad, has this meaningless suffering that it wants to have. And it is described in the book of Job as being without meaning. And God is upset with Satan. He says, without meaning, you want to, to cause suffering for this person. And again, meaning and rationality without any reason or logic behind it, you want to add suffering to the world. Another question I have for you, Amanda, while we're on this topic, do you see people throughout the Old and New Testament wanting to twist the idea of some sort of punishment for any sort of sin that happens. If someone's got an ailment, like someone being blind, is do people like to always twist that into this is God punishing you? Yeah, and that's the thing that's so ridiculous. Like we mentioned earlier, Job is probably one of the oldest written um, parts of our scripture. Uh, our scripture mainly started as an oral tradition, especially the Old Testament. There were stories that were passed on from generation to generation. Then when there was a written language and access to those kinds of mediums, it was finally written down. So Job is one of those oldest records that we can put our hands on. And it's a story about how God does not punish people like that. And yet we can see prevalently throughout our scripture um, where people are accusing that. And, and you particularly mentioned about being blind. One of the ways that the religious leaders try to trap Jesus is he heals a blind man and they're caught up with the idea, well, who sinned? Did his parents or did him? And they had memorized 
the, the people, uh, the religious leaders of that day would have memorized large portions. They might not have memorized the book of Job because they were mostly finished on the Pentateuch, but they had memorized, they knew scripture. And yet here they are spouting such ridiculous heresies. And even today, like we said, oh, well, oh, you got cancer because, you know, I don't know, God's punishing you or because you did something evil in your life or whatever else. Uh, no, you got in a car accident. Or, we, we try to attribute some kind of motive to the chaos in our world, to some kind of uh, the horrors that happen to us. And what we find oftentimes is the book of Job is a huge book. It's, it's like 42 chapters. That basically says that is a ridiculous, it is a heresy um, that has made its way into the church. And because the way God interacts with the world is quite differently, um, again, yeah, and the heresy we're talking about here is when people, like these religious leaders, they try to trap someone with something that they shouldn't be trapping someone with. They're trying to wield guilt in a way that is, is just inappropriate, too. They're adding suffering where it's not due to. And we'll come back to talk about meaning in a moment, but I think we have a, another question that actually may lead us into that. Anthony, what's next on our, our list of, of discussion points? What is the difference between what God says and what the accuser says. All right, so I want us to look at Job chapter 2. And this is after the accuser, he comes to God and he says, you know, why don't you just make Job's life miserable? Take his, his children from him, take his possessions from him, make his life a living hill, and then he'll turn away from you. All those things happen, and Job, um, by the, the mercy and the, the grace given to him, he somehow maintains a, a righteous will, and he says, you know, I'm not going to curse God. And in chapter 2, Satan comes back, and I want us to read this, and I want you to notice what the accuser asks for, and that's Satan, what Satan asks for, but what God says back to him. Because Satan, he really wants to have people, so he wants to so desperately to break people's will down. He wants to see the decay of the spirit, but he really can't have any of those things. He has no control over that, so he'll have to settle for asking for people's body. He likes corpses um, because he can't care for a soul. I want us to read this and see what we have here. So Job chapter 2, verse 1, and this is the English Standard Version, says, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on all the earth? A blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast in his integrity. And although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Notice that language. There's no reason or rationality to this. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. Sort of like that tat for tat or however tit that. Tit for tat. Tit yeah. for tat. Yes, excuse me. Sort of like that skin for skin. All that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. Again, we see Satan, he kind of wants to see Job's spirit broke, but he can't by his own power do that. He can't have so much spiritual decay in Job's life, but he can't go after the body and hope that that leads to spiritual decay. He can go after corpses. He can cause suffering. He can do his best to take life because he's after something even larger for that. But the Lord says, no, life is, is sacred. You cannot take his life. And thus we see the story of Job unfold even further. So I do think it's interesting that God tells him you can't take his life, but yet 
Satan is asking for the body. And God points out, he says, what you're doing has no reason or rationality behind it. And it's quite clear that God is displeased with the lack of reason and rationality behind the suffering that the accuser is causing. Manny, do you have any thoughts on all of that? Well, I do think, um, again, it's, it's interesting that God almost tries to have a rational conversation with Satan, with the accuser. Um, and obviously, Satan is not willing to, to participate in a rational conversation. Um, but yeah, it becomes very clear what Satan's motives is. And it's just to destroy for destruction's sake. Yes, absolutely. Are the events at the end of the book a reward or blessing for Job? So again, this is really interesting. Um, I was listening to a commentator, and it, it kind of sparked something in my mind that something I, I had probably already knew, but hadn't really thought about, and I thought it was quite interesting, was we, we established at the beginning of the book that the things that happened to Job are not a punishment for any sins he committed. And yet a lot of us in reading the story, we then conclude with the idea, well, because Job was faithful, because he did good things, therefore God gave him good things. And we think it's a reward. But again, this is contradictory to the principle we established at the beginning. And so what we, I think we see at the conclusion is not a reward for Job's faithfulness, that it is the natural conclusion of a God who is a God of blessing. And that as God is a God of life, that all those who live in right relationship with that God will experience life. That doesn't mean that troubles and tribulations won't happen, but ultimately the conclusion will be life. And maybe this is a hint to the fact that eternal life does not start just one day someday up in an abstract concept of heaven, but it starts today um, where we can kind of experience and um, join in with it. Yes, and this life is one of eternal value. It is one that when people do pass away, when they fall asleep in the Lord, that promise is very real for them. And I do want to reiterate this concept that if we take what happens in the beginning of the book for granted, it's saying that good things aren't happening to you because it's payment for your, your righteousness, because then it really wouldn't be righteousness. It'd just be some, you know, it's, it's utility. It's like working a job to get, get paid. No, righteousness has inherent value, but also the reward in the end, by that logic, it's not just a reward in the end, but instead it's saying that God's nature is to do his best to bless people. Could God undo the past and make those things go away? No, he could not. Well, he chose us not to because creation is created in the image of God. It has free will, and to, to go back and just undo time would be God saying his own creation must be then decomposed and things like time. The order, the rationality of creation would be fractured and it would become something less. But God looks at his creation and he says, I am choosing to bless. I cannot allow for this injustice to happen without reason or rationality. I'm not going to destroy the world by fracturing creation, but instead I'm going to do the best in giving righteousness. I am going to be the God, the transcendental God who has all might and power. And I'm going to blame blessing in the midst of a moment where it seems like there could be none. Well, any final thoughts on this before we move on? I think there's something to point out real quick. You were talking about free will. And I think sometimes we can look at suffering and we can kind of go, okay, um, when bad things happen, like a crime is committed, we can say a, a person chose to use their free will to do bad things and it harmed others. Um, we can look at maybe people who, who don't take care of themselves physically and they get very ill and we could say, they got ill because they didn't eat right or they didn't take care of their bodies or they didn't practice good hygiene. 
Um, but sometimes suffering happens, and there's not something we can put our hands to. There's not a motive we can say for sure. This is why it happened. Sometimes people get sick just because they get sick. Um, sometimes people get involved in accidents just because there was an accident. We can't say this is what happened. So sometimes there's tragedy and chaos in our lives that's not directly linked to free will. And that's really difficult for us to get our hands around and our minds around. And so I think that's why we end up looking, ignoring really the book of Job and saying, well, it must be God punishing us or it must be some kind of weird idea of, of how um, God works or that people died so he can have one more angel in his choir or whatever ridiculous cliche we want to say in the midst of grief. And I think that's why when God talks to Job through the whirlwind, he just basically says, I am the almighty. I created the earth. I laid the foundations. Um, I am the only one who can control. And he talks about the behemoth and the Leviathan, these great creatures that are, are uncontrollable by mankind. Um, and he says, I'm the almighty. And that's kind of just the conclusion. And that's such a, a bad conclusion because we want something a little bit more concrete, something we can um, wrap our minds around a little bit better. But in the end, it's just simply God is faithful. Yes. And that is a wonderful conclusion, but it doesn't always give us the answers that we're looking for. And that is where we really do find ourselves a lot of times struggling and we fall back into these traps of, of whether it be a, a, a cliche statement or something where we're trying to, to misuse guilt against someone or something like that, or maybe even misusing guilt against ourselves. Because in the midst of grief and suffering, it is difficult to find meaning. And sometimes there is meaning in rationale behind the suffering. And sometimes there's, there's something like the accuser trying to do it without meaning or rationale at all. And that is really difficult. And that being said, we do hope that everyone out there knows Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. And if you haven't spent time studying the book of Job, we challenge you, read it. It's a weird book. It feels like something that's so ancient we don't know how old it is. It kind of is so ancient we don't really know how old it is. And it feels like it's been translated into some ancient version of Hebrew from some other even older, more ancient language. And all of this may very well be true. But do spend time reading this. And if anyone has questions or comments about the book of Job, they'd like to talk with a pastor. They'd like to talk about some of these questions about God and suffering. If we would like to talk about how the almighty God can come and work in your life or you'd just like to talk to a pastor, please reach out to us. Um, and with that, we're going to go to a break and we'll be back to wrap up our program with Hot, Not, or Sanctified. Right, and we will be coming back. We're going to wrap up with our wonderful game, Hot, Not, or Sanctified. It's how we decide if things are positive theological inspirations or not. Um, and if we say hot, we like it. If we say not, we generally don't like it or it needs to be improved upon or something of that nature. And if we say sanctified, we're saying only God can decide. We're not saying the item is sanctified, just that only God can decide in this moment. So Anthony has a list for us. Neither Amanda nor myself has seen... The list. It's always fun to do a hot take. Um, I love doing the hot takes of stuff. Um, Anthony's prepared a list for us, and he's going to be sharing that now. What are we going to be talking about, Anthony? I have to say this every time, but I'm not necessarily the one who prepared this list. I'm merely presenting this list, and this is a list that I've chosen for us to get to talk about. So, this is 10 New Ways to Pray by Franciscan Media. And okay. the post was made by a guest author. Okay. New ways to pray? Is that what you said? New ways to pray. Ten new ways to pray. That's, okay. That's interesting. All right. Here we go. Number one. 
Focus on images, not words. And what would capture this best, because there's a paragraph here, is to envision those things that you would like to pray about, and these prayers will make every bit as much sense to God as your words. All right. Rule says we, we only get to use the word sanctified once, <laughs> or else we will be shamed out of here. I'm going to let Amanda respond to this, and then I will. Well, I think I'm okay. So I'm 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 kind of confused. I'm still confused by the ten new ways to, to pray. So I want to almost put the list, the title, um, as not just because there's no new way to talk to God. There just there's not. Um, I'm sorry, <laughs> it just isn't. So, but I think maybe what they're trying to say is maybe some old ways that either have been lost to time or some ways that maybe we think are new because they haven't been practiced very often. Um, but ways of picturing again, that's a very ancient way of understanding. Um, how to communicate with God. And that's why we have things like icons and, and different and symbols. Uh, even if you're in a Protestant church that does not believe in iconography, odds are you still have a cross somewhere. You have something that helps you connect um, with God because we are not just auditory learners and communicators. We are also uh, visual and kinesthetic um, creatures. And so because of all those things, I think this is actually a great way to maybe help people um, introduce a way of communicating with God that may not seem very traditional, but actually it is. Um, so I'm going to go with hot. Okay, why don't we add this in? After we get done with this list, we'll write the whole list as hot, not as okay. simplified. So we'll add that in the end. And I'm going to say not, and not okay. because I think it's inherently bad, um, but I think it needs to be a little bit more in-depth in its statement there. Because in our modern world, there are a lot of people who say, well, oh, you say imagery can be prayer? Well, I'll just watch a Christian program and now I've prayed. Mm. So I think it needs to be a little bit more specific, though I think if you could be saying something like visual stimulation like icons or beautiful architecture, using that to get your mind moving in the direction of prayer. I think I would say hot to that. But just as the statement stands as itself, I think it's incomplete. I think it's moving in the right direction, but I'm only saying not because I, I want some more specific language. There. I want it to raise the bar just a little bit. I will say there is a lot of really great tradition that you could reference in that to um, give it a lot more strength. Moving on to number two, visit God in your past. And more specifically, to um, kind of elaborate on that, um, consider taking your own pilgrimage into the past. Visit the shrines in your life, the places, relationships, and times when God was present. And stop along the way, thanking God, asking Him for healing, or singing hallelujahs in His presence. We are doing hot takes. So my first um, thought on this, I know we've got some science fiction references <laughs> behind us. I've got the, the poster from the X-Files, um, though instead of saying I, I want to believe, it says I believe, I help my unbelief. It's the reference to the man who takes his demon-possessed child to Jesus. Amanda's got some Doctor Who references behind her. She's got the Daleks and, of course, the TARDIS. I don't know anyone that actually has a time machine, so I don't know how you would actually know, do a pilgrimage what, to the past. I know. When I first heard that, I was like, say what? Like, yeah, I, don't, I don't quite comprehend. I, I'm going to... I'll go ahead and say not to this one because, it, again, it needs to raise the bar a little bit. The concept, I think, is hot of looking to things which have happened before, but at the same time, just the raw statement in itself is so kind of confusing when you first say it. It, it lacks the position, I feel like, to move people. I don't know. What are your thoughts? I know. I'm really conflicted, too. Um, 
again, we can look into the history of the people of God, and there's this story, a great story in the Old Testament where uh, the people of God cross the Jordan and they stack stones and it says, teach this to your children. They'll remember uh, how God has delivered his people. And it, that becomes a, a popular imagery throughout Christendom of how to remember what God has done. It's called stacking stones. And you have this thing about raising your Ebenezer, which Ebenezer means um, God has helped me or the help. Um, and so th- there's concepts, yes, that are very great. that are very hot in the statement. But the other thing I don't really like is it's really individualistic and let's let's be very clear we each make as individuals the choice to follow god or not to follow so i'm not discounting that at all but i think if we try to like go back to our own timeline we're missing out on the great history that it's not just us but it is the people of god that we should explore and see how god is faithful so i think i'm gonna go with not but again with the caveat that it's not completely 100 percent bad it's just there's just so much better, I think, language that could have been used. You know, when you were talking, you had me sold on changing my answer to hot. Because <laughs> when I first heard this, I thought it was a, a more of the journey to the center of the self. Like, what have I yeah. had in my life? But then when you start talking about church history, now making a pilgrimage to learn about people before. I know we've looked at a lot of people recently. We've talked about Anselm. We've talked about Angela Marici. People like Isidore of Seville, so many people, Sebastian out there, um, Agnes of Bohemia. There's so many really, really, really good people from church history. If you're making a pilgrimage to learn more about those people, absolutely, I would say hot. But then back to the point that it doesn't be specific. It just says, look to the... The past. It's not specific enough for me. Unfortunately, uh, I'm going to stick with that. Okay. Though I really like the idea. Just just come on, raise the bar just an inch. (laughs) Add, Add two words to that sentence. Um, and it would be great. Well, based on all that, uh, my guess is that you guys are going to love this next one, but you're going to hate the name of it. Oh, okay. Okay. So old, it's new again. And so the starting line for this, for many contemporary Catholics, and by extension uh, all Christians, old school forms of prayer, such as novenas, which are often about saints and prayed for nine days, litanies, another classic form of prayer, have been relegated to the bookshelf, and rosary beads are languishing, forgotten in a nightstand drawer. All right, so again, there's almost a caveat, and, and we understand we're Protestant ministers. We're, we're Church of the Nazarene, which is a, um evangelical holiness Protestant. I'm trying to think what other Western, um, what other qualifiers we need to add to that to help uh, uh, describe Nazarene. But anyways, um and so some of those things, like rosaries, um, even icons, the reason Protestant kind of revolted against those ideas was because they were being misused. But again, the ideas themselves aren't bad. They're something that help us, again, kinesthetically with the rosary reads or visually help us focus because we are all fairly incompetent creatures who, who like to get distracted rather easily. Um, and so they help us focus on who God is. And the saints remind us we don't pray to the saints, but we, we pray in their memory knowing that they have lived lives that we can now um, take as examples. So I like this idea. And litanies are so important. Um, one of the earliest, uh, I guess, parts of, of the Bible that teaches how to pray is the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. And you don't just say that when you're happy. You say that even when you don't understand it. And it allows you to connect with God, to speak to God, to pray to God, to communicate with God in a way that you otherwise could not be able to if you had to rely on your own language. And that's why those things, everything that Anthony has mentioned, I think is hot. I'm going to say hot as well. Um, I don't like how that sentence was stated. The whole, it's so old, it's Yeah, it was again. a weird title. The, the statement, I, I don't like the diction in it, but it's totally true. 
Um, I, I like the sentiment that's being shared with that. I like the idea behind that. I mean, look at me now. I've, I've done gone back to dressing like this because I want people to know that I am a Christian minister, and I'm proud of that. When we look at our world, Amanda brought up iconography um, just to add some other things to their like architecture. We look at our world, and we've lowered the bar in so many ways. We've gone from the the preacher wears something like this where anybody sees you in any context and though that that that's a minister of the gospel right there. They look at there and you know you go to the hospital and and people know that and there's some ability to approach you. We've lowered the bar in so many ways and both in our architecture and the way you see um, just so many things happen. Even the language that we use. Recently, when I was online, I was looking at a conversation with people who were supposed to be leaders in the church. And one of them asked, what does the word sacred mean? What does it mean for something to be sacred? And I looked at the responses that people had, and these were supposed to be people who were in pastoral roles, and the pitchforks are coming. They had answers like relationship or your body. And I was like, we have lowered the bar intellectually. Also, Facebook's just not a good place to have an intellectual conversation. It's not. It's not. But we, we've lowered the bar. And I don't think that... Have we made anything better by lowering the bar? People, when I remember when I was at Trevecca, when I was doing undergraduates, um, studying uh, theology, you, I would ask people as sort of a game, what does the word worship mean? And I always had the most fun asking to people who were studying worship arts, and they really couldn't tell you. They couldn't give you a, a coherent answer. And my thing is this, is I don't think that people, I don't think the, the people coming to churches, no matter what their IQ is, I, I think that people want to learn more. I think that people want to have their minds stimulated. I've met people all over the spectrum. I've even met people who have uh, mental disabilities, and they want to learn. They want to learn more. We have lowered the bar, and in doing so, we have given so many things up. So this idea that returning to the past, having um, things about your physical dress, which lets people know you're a pastor, having things like the liturgy. I know where Amanda's at, they use a lot more of the things like liturgy, and they even deal with things like iconography a bit more than, than we do. Um, maybe <laughs> they have more imagery than we yes. do in, in a lot of senses. Um, though it's not like little shrine set up or anything like that. But when I, I look at that, there's, there's a wave of people in the church who are wanting to return to some older things because we're kind of sick of everything being watered down. We miss the things that we've lost. Um, to sort of elaborate on what you said earlier, Dylan, about um, how far we've watered things down. I will say we've kind of done that to such a degree that we've made ourselves unrecognizable on the outside and what's worse, even on the inside. Yeah. And that's really, really bad. And a lot of times people say, oh, well, you know, you're a rural pastor. They don't want to hear big words. I don't think that's true at all. They may, people want to learn. My experience is that people, they don't want you to talk down to them. Now, if you come in and be like, oh, you can't understand these words, you all, people must be dumb. I don't think that's... Um, an appropriate way to come to people, but people do want to learn. And I have faith in congregations that they want to be stimulated. They want to understand deep theological concepts. I mean, they're showing up to church for some reason. I think they, they really want deep theology. And they want things to help along with that. And maybe we wouldn't have to have such an emphasis on language if we had things around us which could help along with that, imagery and, and architecture and things of that nature. What's the next? The next one is try different prayer postures and that is pretty self-explanatory so quite literally the way in which you you you, you configure yes, your, yourself your physical stance i'll say hot to praying. that it's it's good to have a new habit for things it's changing yes. stuff up yeah and that's a, um just 
like the way I, I pray my morning prayers is why I walk my dog because again I'm easily distracted and so if I just sit I, I will my mind wanders so by walking and I know we talked about earlier jogging is from like the pits of hell I do not jog I walk and I enjoy that and so that for me is a better way of having my physical body not be a distraction and so some people may sit I know some people kneel some people lay prostrate on the ground like yeah I think it's good to try out what best helps you connect um, with God. And there are a lot of traditions, again, it's not just you. There's a lot of traditions in the church body and in the church universal that can maybe point you in some good directions. Yep. What we got next? Well, I, will, I did want to say that um, something that I like about it is that it can kind of affect the psychology that you're going into it. And that sounds a little weird, but it, it almost sort of prepares you to be in a, the proper state to pray whenever you put yourself in um, mm-hmm. a more appropriate stance. But in any case, also, I feel like you can pray in any physical position that you need to. <laughs> so, number five, pray with gospel stories. So, like, just gospels as in the four first books of the New Testament or just good news story? Like, I'm going to go with weird. it meaning the actual gospels in the New Testament. I'll say okay. hot to that. Yeah. I, well, and I would expand it just to say that praying scripture is very powerful. Yeah. Um, again, coming to scripture, reading it, not as much as a sense of what can I learn, but how does this inform me about who God is so that I can be in right relationship um, with God. And so, um, yeah, I think that's that's very powerful. So hot. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to agree with you. It, it shouldn't be limited to that statement, but it's, it's good. I like it. Yeah. Hot. I will say, um, just to elaborate a little further and to give you guys more to talk about, um, one of the lines here, for instance, is, you know, read one of the stories, imagining yourself in that gospel scene. Yeah, yeah I, that's good. I think it's good. What we got next? Change your prayer environment. And I think that's also pretty self-explanatory. I think that goes back into the same thing with the position. So I'm going to say said hot to that by the same logic, hot to this. Yes, and, and I will... I, I kind of want to say hot too, but I also want to put a little clarifier in there and just say that, um, like there, <laughs> there are bad places. It's not that you can't pray anywhere, but there's probably some not as good places to pray. Um, you know, it might be a really good time to pray, um, when you're stuck in traffic and you almost want to cuss somebody out who, who, um, cut in front of you, but also probably just pay attention to the road. Um, so I, I think, yeah, it's good to change it up, I guess, to keep you from getting bored or distracted or whatever, but also still be aware of your surroundings. Not sure where I was going with that. Sorry. Sounds good. <laughs> Recite the Jesus prayer. And the, what is the Jesus prayer is the humble prayer of the tax collector uh, in one of Jesus's parables where you can find in Luke 18, verse 13. And it goes most of the time something along like this. This is the classic form. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. A sinner, sorry. I think it's good. I mean, by the same logic of what I've said before, it would apply to this as well, hot. Um, and, and yeah, yeah, I think we've talked about written prayers before. So, yeah. yeah. Though I would add this to it. Um, another good short prayer is this idea of I believe help my unbelief. There are times when you feel like you don't have deep enough faith. The the statement, and yes, there's a spaceship. <laughs> not, not, and for those who are, are listening to audio only, there's a, a poster behind me of a, what's the, the poster behind Mulder's desk? Um, it's just a reference to the whole X-Files thing, just for people who like science fiction, but it's it's also a reference to Jesus. The, the statement, I believe, help my unbelief. Um, it's also a good short prayer. 
write a personal prayer. Number eight. Yeah, I think the same logic yeah, applies it, to this as well. I think it's hot. I, I will say again, personally, I hate writing. I hate journaling. And that's always somebody, like, as soon as I talk to someone, I'm like, hey, how would you encourage someone who wants to um, better their prayer life? They're like, you should journal. And I'm like, that's like jogging for me. It's boring after like two seconds. I'm done. Um, so, again, find out. Not that it's all about you, or it's not all about me, but figure out how you best operate, how your mind works, how your body works, and understand that God has created you as a unique being that's going to communicate with God's self differently than everyone else. Um, so writing is good. It's a good tool. But if it doesn't work for you, that doesn't mean you're bad at prayer. For those watching us, they're probably like, look at those millennials. They hate writing. They hate <laughs> running. Um, <laughs> though I will uh, say, Amanda and Anthony are very hardworking people. Um, so... No one should get the, the wrong end. We, we actually enjoy writing and things, but sometimes there is technology to help with that. Um, they're also looking at us like, look at how they dress. Those weird people. They've got a spaceship behind them. What is wrong with them? The pitchforks are coming. I'm going to say hot to this. Um, I think it's good. Write stuff out. Number nine, read the Psalms. Yeah, again. Very self-explanatory. Yep, same logic applies. Hot. Hot. Is it? All right, now this next one is going to be controversial. So okay. I'm going to read it, and then uh, we'll, we can talk about it. So okay. <laughs> number 10, talk to your friend Jesus. Okay, so I can get how that could maybe be um, not great because um, the language, like, talk to your friend Jesus, it seems real casual. I think our prayer life needs to be intentional. We, we have to mentally, physically, with our time, even um, with our talents, with our money, intentionally say we're going to set it apart uh, for God. However, we do not have to ever become so formal that just because we did not say thee or thou or Lord after every other phrase that somehow it does not make it a prayer. So I think what this is trying to pull us, this is kind of reactionary. It's trying to pull us away from people who maybe over-formalized prayer. But then again, in probably 10, uh, 15 years, maybe even less than that, someone's going to write something different that pulls us back from being too informal. Well, um, I think so. we're at the too informal place now. Yeah. <laughs> if you say. That's one of the things which confuses me is like this sentence would have made sense like 100 years ago. Like what? Like, right. like this doesn't really fit our context because everything's so casual now. Well, I'm thinking probably who wrote this is not our generation. That may be so, true too. Um, that may be true. They may be anticipating a different issue that happened in their generation. So again, this this is not a bad thing. It's just I've, it's very situational. Yeah, it is situational. I'm gonna I'm gonna say hot to it because I think anybody that hears this that's actually interested in having a, a prayer life is gonna be mature enough to deal with it rationally. Mm -hmm. um, though I don't like. Because it does almost sound shallow. Yeah. And I mean, I, I just got done beating up on how we've lowered the bar for things, though. The bar for accessing Jesus, Jesus went to the cross so that, that we could have personal relationships, so we could actually be a friend with Jesus. Like, there's a whole reason to that. Like, it's really good that we can have a friend in Jesus and we can have a personal relationship with him. That's the one of the whole beautiful things. There was one sacrifice to rule them all. Um, oh, please, no pitchforks for that one. Um, you no longer have to have a priest doing a sacrifice at the temple. You can go to know God personally. So I, th I think it's a hot statement. Um, I will say, whenever you're taking it in the context of the Catholic Church, there may be a lot of good use for this just because, not to bash on people, but I've talked to a lot of people who were former Catholics who go to Protestant churches now and stuff like that. And not to bash the Catholic Church, they do have a lot of things that they do right. But um, a lot of 
several of those people that I've talked to have mentioned that before they weren't really taught how to pray. Yeah. Like they would recite prayers and things like that, which I think is really helpful, but they didn't have any per- such such a thing as a personal prayer. Yeah. So in that regard, I would definitely say, yes, talk to Jesus, talk to your friend Jesus. But then at the same time, Jesus should definitely be more than your friend also. Yeah. So um, as long as you can manage those waters, then this is good advice. Yeah. And if send us your thoughts, your questions, your your opinions on these are hot, not are sanctified. Again, we can be wrong. Um, send us your thoughts on it. Uh, maybe you, you feel differently about these statements, or maybe you have something you'd like to add to that list, so send it to us. Amanda, what do you think about the list as a whole? Hot, not, or sanctified? Oh, I think the easy thing would just be say sanctified and, and, and go home. But well, um, we didn't. We didn't no I didn't use sanctified. Yeah, so, so I we could, could. I think overall the concept of this, I'm going to go with hot, because I think in the context through Franciscan Medium, which is, which is a great website to kind of educate people, about different aspects of the church, specifically the Roman Catholic Church, but just the church universal. Yeah. Um, this may be very encouraging to a lot of people, so I think hot. I'll say hot, too. It's a good place for an online pilgrimage. Um, you can go there and read the saints of the day. Um, I love reading the saints of the day because it's stuff that we just, again, many of us in the Protestant world were like, well, there was the book of Acts where we're told church history, and then this pastor was the favorite pastor of my oldest living relative, and that's church history. And we sometimes miss what happened. <laughs> There's basically like 2,000 years of missing um, history. And Franciscan media, um, before the church split out the Reformation, you know, there's 1,500 years where the whole Western church is united, um, or essentially united. Yeah, there's little factions and schisms and things. But um, you can go and look at that, and you can see a church history that has brought us to where we're at today and find your spiritual ancestors, and it's a really fun place. The short reads, too. Some of them are just a paragraph or two. Real, real short introduction to people from the history. Um, great. Well, anyways, we hope you enjoyed our program. Um, do share our content again. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud. Find us on Facebook. Um, we're at a couple of places on Facebook. Of course, our main page is called Kingdom of the Lagos, but we also post at Jolton Church of the Nazarene, which is where we're hosted. Um, please do share our content. If you really enjoy our stuff, hitting that share button will help us out tremendously. With that, God bless and have a blessed day.